In the movie Broadcast News, written by James L. Brooks, William Hurt asks his colleague, what do you do when your real life exceeds your dreams? The answer that he gets back is, keep it to yourself. My guest, best-selling author Frederick Forsyth, has had a life that could only have far exceeded his own expectations. But instead of keeping it to himself, he's used it as the basis for 15 books that have thrilled us, delighted us, and taken us to places and situations that we may dream about, but that Frederick Forsyth has actually touched. Frederick Forsyth is the author of 15 internationally best-selling novels, from 1971's The Day of the Jackal to 2013's The Kill List. Five movies have been made from his novels, and it is my pleasure to welcome Frederick Forsyth here to talk about his new memoir, The Outsider, My Life in Intrigue, Frederick Forsyth, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Indeed, great to have you here. What was it that made you decide at this point, after all these novels, all this writing, to tell your own story? Well, it was uh, I, fend- I fended off the idea of doing a, an autobiography for quite some time now. I've been asked by uh, pub- publishers and agents and so on, but I didn't want to do that because I think an autobiography can be a kind of heavy book. Um, but uh, I finally settled for what I would regard as about 50 anecdotes, um, little little mini-stories. Uh, they're all, all true. Uh, and I call them a memoir, which is uh, you know, obviously from the, from the French word, just meaning what you remember. And it is. It's just what I remember. Um, places I went to, people I met, uh, crazy things that happened, sometimes funny, sometimes not funny at the time, but funny now. And uh, I also write them in a lighthearted way, in the manner of guys... Uh, sitting around the dining table uh, when the wine has flowed, just exchanging memories. That's the way it's written. It's hard to imagine sitting down and, and writing these memories and writing these anecdotes, and in some ways them not being conflated somehow with all the wonderful imaginary places and imaginary situations that you have created in your novels. I'm sure that in some ways they, there's a kind of nexus between them that maybe even can't even be defined. I suppose so, yeah. And I think in the novels, I never invented places. I invented events that didn't happen, obviously, characters that didn't exist. Um, but I always tried to uh, just, A, one, tell a story. Okay, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, just really what I do. I think it's not, it's not, you don't read my stuff for the prose style or something, or the characterizations, uh, or the, even the dialogue. It's the story. I'm 80% just a teller of stories. Um, but the places uh, I set those stories, I, I just uh, have an obsessional uh, desire to get them right. Uh, so um, it's a question of what, what, when, it, when I describe how something happens, that's the way it happens. What uh, the authorities do in a certain situation, that's what they do. Uh, and when it comes to the places, uh, 90% of the time I will actually go there physically to look at a, look at a place uh, because you can learn so much just visiting that uh, you will not find on Google, you will not find uh, in brochures. Um, and uh, that's, that's, uh, that's why I try and, and, and set the stories in places that I've examined myself uh, and try and be actually spot on accurate. So people later maybe who visit or who know the place already will say, hey, you got it right. <laughs> that's satisfying to me. 
the, the other part that's interesting is that the scope of your work is so large and so long from, from the early 1970s right on up into the present that so much has, has changed in so many ways in, in terms of international intrigue and in terms of a lot of these places, and yet it's remained the same in so many ways. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, obviously, the first, I think, first half uh, of of the uh, writing life was in the Cold War. Right. Um, it's, it's maybe hard for the young to remember uh, back. The Cold War ended, I suppose, when Gorbachev dissolved the USSR in 1991, uh, already 25 years ago. But um, there was obviously, for, for most of us who, who, who go back as far as the Second World War, it was the 40, 45 years of tension um, with the USSR. She was the enemy. KGB was, the, was their fighting arm. We uh, had to oppose, and we did. Uh, and eventually, we won. But uh, the stuff I wrote during the Cold War, yes, the, the, it was a, a lot of it was to do with the, the Russian threat. Um, since then, I've, I've, got, I've gone into other areas like uh, Islamic fundamentalism, I think twice, the Afghan uh, and uh, the Kill List, um, and various, various other things that have changed. The big, for me, the big, big change is the technology. Mm. It is now Im- immensely different from what it was. I mean, we, I remember we had no laptops, no cell phones, um, and we actually sent messages by telex, remember, right. ask her, or it's, who, who remembers the telex machine? <laughs> I remember. But that was what it was like. <laughs> well, talk about that. When the Cold War started to come to an end, how did you think about that in terms of how it would affect your work your st- and the stories you would tell? Well, it didn't. It didn't worry me actually. A lot of a uh, lot of pe- people in the media back in Britain called me up and said, "Hey, you're finished, man. <laughs> uh, like it's all over. You know, the, the the Cold War is over, and so the the threat of foreign espionage is over, and uh, you, know, you know we're going to live in a in a threat-free world." And I thought, "Oh no, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not." Uh, in fact, it was uh, if, um, very shortly after. Um, the 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 uh, end of the Cold War in '91, probably the mid '90s, uh, that the first hint came of this new humanist called uh, Islamic fundamentalism, jihadism, uh, with uh, a certain uh, Mr. Osama bin Laden. Okay, you remember obviously 9/11, but he had yet struck several times in the uh, in the late '90s, um, and. Uh, so I thought that there'll always be food uh, for a novelist, uh, always be something to write about, always be a threat, and there'll always be adventures. So it didn't worry me in the slightest, and I just went on and, uh, and invented fresh, fresh themes, uh, um, like, for example, The Fist of God, which was the, the first anti-Saddam Hussein war. Um, that was a, you know, a, a, a big event in its day. That was 1991. Um, so the, the stories never let up. If you look around the world, of course there are lots of things to write about. It's just that I've, I've reached now a stage where, at the ripe old age of 77, I think, uh, that, this, uh, that this, this book uh, is my swan song. It's, I'm, I'm retiring, and I'm going to do what old boys ought to do, walk the dogs, <laughs> play with the kids. <laughs> As you look back at some of the things that you wrote during the Cold War, even post-Cold War, were there things that you look back on now and that, that, that even that you've touched on in The Outsider that were in some ways prescient, things you wrote about in the context of telling a story and somebody might have said, well, that seems far-fetched, but it was exciting, it was intriguing, and, and in fact, some of those events would come to pass? 
Yeah, there were some. Obviously, the, I think the one that's the one that the, uh, I try and make the book reasonably lighthearted. The one area, obviously, you cannot be lighthearted about, and that was the horror of watching those children die in the Biafra War. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, the, the, at the end of it all, I think the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross said that about a million children had died. And um, back then, uh, 1968, nine, um, the Western world had not seen pictures as horrible as what came out of that war. And we have since. We've seen these uh, uh, famines in Africa which result from the crop failure because the rains never came or something. But uh, the thing about the Nigeria-Biafra war, it was a war. And the, uh, the, 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 it was the, the, the starvation that was inflicted upon people quite deliberately by a dictatorship that caused those children to die. And so that, I, I think, was, was uh, something you can't joke about. I, I, there's a lot in the book that is basically jokey, mm-hmm. but not that. That's, okay. that's uh, different. And uh, I, would, to this day, remain disgusted. My own government uh, covertly uh, assisted in that slaughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never forgiven for that. Talk about your own experience growing up during uh, the Second World War and what, what you saw and how it really informed so much of what you would uh, explore and write about later. Yeah, I guess it was a uh, yeah, strange period. I mean, 1940, I was born in uh, So I was, I was beginning to realize what was going on in the world around me about 1944 when I was six years old. It's about time a kid really begins to realize, you know, what's going on. And uh, I, I, it, was a, it was a period uh, when in the little one-horse town I was born and raised in, uh, that uh, because we were so close to the, uh, to the coast, and just across the English Channel was the Nazi army waiting to invade us, um, most of the kids in my town were evacuated. They were sent in, further inland to live with foster parents, because uh, it was thought the invasion could happen. But my own parents took the view that they, they didn't want me to be parted from me, so I stayed there in a town with very few kids. So that, I think, sort of uh, generated in me the uh, preparedness to be uh, alone without being lonely, <laughs> so, uh, to be solitary. And it never left me, and I'm still to this day, you know, I still uh, love long periods of solitude. I don't get lonely, um, and and also peace and quiet. I've always loved peace and quiet. So we're in a world, it seems to me, that is now getting noisier and noisier and more and more crowded. Um, and <laughs> this old boy just wants to be alone, like Greedy de Garbo. But, so but is it, that comes through in the book. Right. But is it any more tumultuous than it was when you spent time in Paris and when you were in East Berlin during the, the height of the Cold War? Talk a little about that. I mean, in some ways, it was just as tumultuous then. It was indeed, yes, in a different way, perhaps. Um, remember, there was, you know, sort of, there was, the technology was uh, two generations back. Um, yeah, but the dangers were still there. I mean, Paris was on the threshold of coup d'etat, maybe uh, civil war, if, if uh, the extreme right-wing thugs had managed to assassinate Charles de Gaulle, I think uh, there would probably have been a coup, and uh, the, the extreme right would be extre- opposed by the extreme left and the probably civil war, as in the style of the Spanish Civil War, which preceded the Second World War. And then, of course, East Berlin was was uh, was uh, different again. It was um, you know a harsh communist dictatorship. Uh, there was the wall splitting the city in, in two. On one side, uh, the, uh, the the Western Allies, the Brits and the Americans, and some French, and on the other side, the Soviets. Uh, a very tense situation. 
So uh, yeah, I, it's probably not different. So, well, it's different, but it's it's probably not more dangerous now than it was. But it's a different kind of danger. It looks like today the, the danger is stemming from the Middle East, uh, not uh, not Moscow, despite what Putin's doing in Syria and uh, and in Ukraine. Nevertheless, it looks like the the the, the real crazies are these are ISIL people who just slaughter um, anybody in their way. Um, so that's 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 a different kind of danger. Uh, but it's a it's a younger generation now has taken over. I mean, and people like me should step back. You were, we were too old. Yeah, but you spent time when you when you were in Africa when you encountered some of the Colombian drug cartel people. Those that was a pretty dangerous period too. Well, yeah, I didn't mean it to be. <laughs> it's just <laughs> a stupid stupid uh, coincidence. I I I was near the end of a book called The Cobra which was uh, about the huge criminal world behind the cocaine trade. And um, I'd, I'd been told in Bogota, Colombia, that um, a, lot of, a lot of the, um, uh, the cocaine heading for Europe didn't go straight. It went across to West Africa first. And then uh, there, were, there, were, there were failed states in West Africa where the Colombians had purchased by the head of state, the government, uh, the, the, the you know the head of the navy, the head of the customs and excise, and so on. so they were unloading huge quantities of cocaine in the creeks uh, of the mangrove swamps of Western Africa. I thought I'd better go and have a look at that. So uh, I, I I boarded a plane in Lisbon, and what I didn't know was that when I was airborne, someone blew the chief of staff of the army of Guinea-Bissau into several spectacular pieces, and uh, I landed in the middle of a coup, uh, another coup d'état. Um, which uh, I didn't intend to do. It was just, you know, kind of hairy. So um, anyway, they, the, the, the army came into town seeking revenge for their murdered chief of staff. They, they thought it was another tribe that had done it. It wasn't. It was the Colombians, but nevertheless. Uh, and so they, sh- they, they, they chopped the president to pieces with matchets just outside my bedroom window, actually. <laughs> so I thought, hello. Oh, <laughs> I think I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. But these things happen in life. You, you have to get out of there. So I got out. <laughs> but it's all material for, for another book. Well, it's all, it was all, I, I thought this is too good to be true. I mean, in terms of drama. <laughs> so I put it in the book. It's all in the Cobra, exactly what happened. It's, 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 it's in, in that novel. Uh, I'm, I'm not even, I'm just doing a reportage. It's not even fiction. <laughs> You mentioned before you were talking about technology and and certainly how it's changed the world, and we know that it has certainly shrunk the world in so many ways. Do you think that for readers, potential readers out there, that it has taken away a lot of the mystery about the world and that it would make the job and it makes the job of a novelist that much more difficult because so much of the mystery is, is unveiled through technology? It could be that. It certainly made it more difficult for me because I just don't understand a lot of the technology. I mean, there are kids now, it's sort of, you know, 12, 14 years old, they, they, they are geniuses uh, in cyber technology. They can sit tapping away at a screen and break through uh, firewalls and, and hack into databases and things. I don't know how the hell they do it, but they do it. And they look at me as if I'm some dinosaur from an earlier uh, Jurassic Park type age, and they're probably right. So um, that's why I think I, I probably, I don't understand the technology nowadays, but I do know, we all know, I think, that uh, this business of, of listening to us, uh, the, the security services can listen, listen, and listen, and listen, take it, all our emails, all our phone, uh, our mobile cell phone calls, if they want to, and listen to them. Um, 
and uh, so so half the half the, the the wars that are going on are actually going on in a kind of a dimension that I can't understand, which is cyberspace. So we're all watching each other, and uh, and uh, the, the drone, for example, the American invention, which is now becoming a major war weapon. Um, very hard to understand what the hell it does, except you know that a guy can sit in Air Force Base Creech, Nevada, um, with a, a, a control column, and he's flying uh, a piece of technology over the Yemeni desert, the other side of the world, and looking down and seeing in real time real people, some of whom may be terrorists. I mean, wow, what, what extraordinary technology that is, to be able to see a man and, and, and zoom down with the cameras and bring an entire human face up to fill the screen in Nevada. So um, I thought, look, I really I don't think I understand this world anymore. I put as much as I could into the, the kill list of the way, they, the way these uh, predators and reapers uh, and, and global hawks, which are the, the three main drones, how the way they work, but it's still pretty mystifying to me how good it is. Talk about your own interest in and fascination with the way wars are conducted, the way nations deal with each other, the, just the way the world works and what you've learned about that from, from your travels, your experience, and your writing. Well, I guess, I guess uh, you know, the, 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 there will always be combat, always be conflict, always has been, hasn't stopped. It's changed shape, maybe, uh, methodology certainly changed, but uh, there will always be what what, uh, what I could just simply call the bad guys, uh, and um, obviously we think of our own society as the good guys, and usually we're right, but not always. Sometimes our own governments misbehave, but uh, broadly speaking, that those two phrases, the good guys and the bad guys, refer to uh, us, the good guys, and uh, our enemies, the bad guys. Um, but uh, what has happened is, is simply that we now have a new a new raft of bad guys, which are strange to me because in my day the bad guys was the was the Soviet Army <laughs> and Navy and Air Force, and today the bad guys seem to be Islamic fundamentalists and jihadists uh, who are just uh, rampaging through the Middle East and slaughtering, um, and uh, we don't I think really we're, we're puzzled because we don't understand the logic or the, the lack of logic of people who just slaughter for uh, some obscure, to us obscure, religious point. And nevertheless, uh, if you go back in history, yeah, there have been, there have been crazies before. There have been I mean, movements of fanatics before who, who killed for the pleasure of killing. Um, but the, the, there are instances of history, right through history, of such people. So, the, really, it's a French phrase, plus ça change. The more that changes, the more it's the same thing. Nothing really, really seems to change. The human being is not a perfect creature by a long, long chalk. Go back before we uh, wrap it up. Talk about how you got uh, involved in writing. You wrote your first book, Day of the Jackal, in, in one and every 35 days, and it was really the first yeah. thing you had written. Well, look, it was, it was uh, again, people say, you know, was it the muse? Now, there's no muse in my life. Um, <laughs> No, no artistic inspiration. It was, I just found myself back from the Nigeria Biafra War in London, absolutely broke. I hadn't got a bean um, or two to rub together, so I thought, what the hell can I do? I know, I'll write a novel. What a stupid idea. Uh, it's about 100 to 1 that it'll ever be published, and 1,000 to 1 it'll ever be a blockbuster. But I didn't know that. And I say, there must be some kind of guardian angel, maybe who looks after the truly naive 
uh, and maybe even the really stupid in this world. But I sat down and wrote a story that I'd worked out in my head 70 years earlier when I was uh, in Paris, um, thinking these guys trying to kill Charles de Gaulle, they're going to fail, but they might just succeed if they could bring in an outsider. Um, who had no no name, no face, no no passport that anybody ever heard of, uh, but had a scope-sided rifle. He might be able to get a shot at the goal and kill him uh, from long range. And um, so I, I I I sat down and wrote this story. Um, and I needed a code word for him. I didn't want lion. I mean, it's been done, bear, been done, <laughs> cobra, been done. Uh, it's something dangerous, animal lion. And I thought, no, I tell you what. Um, one animal comes in the night, invisible, does what he does, and then is gone by dawn. Uh, the jackal. <laughs> I, I called him the jackal, and uh, it, that's it's, it. Just uh, gave me my first break. I didn't know he was going to do that. I, was, I thought I would just make a little bit of money, settle up my debts, and go back to journalism. But hey, um, uh, the the editor concerned. He he said, "I'm going to take a flyer on this. It's a weird novel, uh, but it's the more so as De Gaulle's still alive. But nevertheless, I, I liked it, and I'm going to publish it." And then he said, "I'd like to sign you up to two more novels." And wow. Well, uh, hold, hey, hold it. I don't have two more ideas. Um, so anyway, he said, "Well, there's money in it," and I thought, "Yeah, there's money in it." Um, okay, I'll think of two ideas. So I thought of. <laughs> And I thought, well, just 10 years earlier, Adolf Eichmann had been tra- tra- traced by Israeli intelligence to Argentina and kidnapped and brought back and put on trial and eventually hanged in Jerusalem. So I, I'll do something about uh, uh, a runaway or, or, or disappeared Nazi mass murderer being tracked down and, and brought to justice. And what else do I know about? I know about mercenaries. I've seen them in West Africa, in the Nigeria, Africa, where there were mercenaries. So I'll do some a book about mercenaries. So I, I, I offered these to the to the the, the editor, and, and he just glanced at the synopses that uh, Nazis first, mercenaries second. So they became the Odessa file and the dogs of war. And by that time, three years later, um, I had really nearly just changed my job. I'd, I'd become a novelist. It paid better, and frankly, I didn't have to get my head blown off in an African rain ditch. Frederick Forsyth, his memoir is The Outsider, My Life in Intrigue. Freddie, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it's been good. Thank you. We'll take a break. Right on, man. I'll be right back.